Welcome to episode 114 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. I'm going to tell you a story that took place in Lexington in the 1920s. A lot of my research for this episode came from a book written by Peter Brackney, and I'll link to it in the show notes so you can order yourself a copy. This is the story of Geneva Hardman and Will Lockett, a.k.a. Petrie Kimbrough. This episode includes discussion of violence against children, violence against women, and lynching. Listener discretion advised. The family of Geneva Hardman lived in Hardensburg in Breckenridge County, Kentucky, which is between Owensboro and E-Town, north of Bowling Green. At the time of the recording of the 1910 census, Rezin Hardman and his wife Emma lived on a farm in Hardensburg. Rezin, that's R-E-Z-I-N, was the patriarch of the family, born in 1859 in Clark County, in a place called Wade's Mill. In 1878, he married Emma Gillespie, a young woman from Bourbon County. They remained in Clark County until 1910, when they purchased the farm in Breckenridge County, which was 116 acres for $3,500. At the time of the 1910 census, the Hardmans had eight living children. There were two older boys, Ollie and Tupper, who'd already moved away from the farm, There were six younger children who still lived with Rezin and Emma. There was Nellie and Nettie, 23 and 20, respectively. There was Clayton, 17, and Robert, 16. Pruitt, their six-year-old daughter. And Geneva, born September 2nd, 1909, just a baby at the time of the 1910 census. Oddly enough, the Hardman's farm was for sale in 1910, which was less than a year after they bought it, and it sold for the same amount they paid for it. They relocated to Lexington because Tupper, one of their older boys, was a farmer there and he was doing very well, so they relocated there to join him. Rezin, the father, had epilepsy, and in July of 1911, he had a seizure. He fell out of his buggy and died. Geneva was not yet two years old when she lost her father. In 1919, Tupper Hardman bought roughly 80 acres along the Harrodsburg and Perryville Pike in southwestern Fayette County, so Emma and the children still living with her moved in with him. By 1920, when another census was recorded, Emma was a 58-year-old widow still living on Tupper's farm, Geneva was 10 years old, living with her mother. Some of the other siblings still lived nearby, and a few of them worked on the farm. Nettie, one of the older sisters, was married and moved to Louisville. Ollie, the oldest son, moved with his family to Winchester. For the first month of 1920, there was nothing extraordinary about the Hardman family. They were a hardworking farm family, tight-knit, down-to-earth. But in February, their lives were changed forever. Half past seven on the morning of February 4th, 1920, Geneva left her house and headed to the schoolhouse. It was under a half-mile walk, pretty quick. 
Usually, a little boy that lived nearby walked with her, but he stayed home from school that day, so she walked by herself. Just before 8 a.m., a farmer found a school bag lying by the road. He took it to the schoolhouse, and the teacher, Miss Young, confirmed that it belonged to her student, Geneva Hardman. At first, the teacher thought maybe Geneva had gotten sick on the way to school and went back home in a hurry and just left her bag behind, maybe would come back and get it later. So the teacher sent a few students to the Hardman home to return it. But this sent Emma Hardman into a panic. Her daughter hadn't come home sick. It was at that moment that they realized Geneva was missing. Geneva never made it to school that day because she was knocked unconscious and dragged from the road where she was assaulted, murdered, and left in a field. While it's never explicitly stated in court records that she was raped, military intelligence records note that her assault was of a sexual nature. A search party quickly formed, and they gathered where the farmer found the school bag and noticed the tracks of what appeared to be a large man, accompanied by the tracks of a small child. On the other side of a fence, the mud got deeper, and it appeared a body had been dragged across it. They followed the prints, then the drag marks, until they found her body partially covered by corn fodder. There was lots of blood. Her hair tie lay near her body, trampled in mud. Her umbrella lay broken nearby. Observers saw that a large rock sat next to her body. It was covered in blood and appeared to have been the murder weapon used to crush her skull. Unfortunately, Emma Hardman, her mother, was with the group that found her. She saw all of this. Um, she saw her daughter in this condition. This was an absolute shock to the small community of South Elkhorn in the Lexington suburbs. Things like this didn't happen. Geneva's funeral was held in the South Elkhorn Christian Church a few days after her death. That church still stands, by the way. The crowded service was officiated by the Reverend Elmer Snoddy, who also happened to be a theology professor at Transylvania's College of the Bible. A handful of her little classmates served as pallbearers. Forty vehicles accompanied the family to the graveside service at Winchester Cemetery, where Geneva was laid to rest next to her dad. But while they were mourning her loss, the community was also desperate to find her killer. A group of over 50 people gathered, armed with shotguns and other weapons, to search the area and look for suspects. Local authorities, of course, gathered as well, including four deputies from the Fayette County Sheriff's Office. The sheriff himself, J. Waller Rhodes, was out of town at the time of the murder and was not present for the immediate aftermath. But upon learning what happened, he did immediately board the next train back to Lexington. Law enforcement officers from other counties traveled to South Elkhorn to join the investigation. The number of members in these angry mobs grew into the hundreds. There was concern that if civilians figured out who did it before the lawmen and they got to him first, he'd be lynched before he was prosecuted. 
They immediately were able to zone in on one suspect. The Lexington Herald would soon report that a black man named Will Lockett had been captured and had confessed. One man had seen Lockett and had offered to give him a ride further down Harrodsburg Pike, and then Claude Elkin, another local man, had seen Lockett visit a grocery store and a general store around 7 a.m., and a few others confirmed they'd seen him around the area, and it was unusual because he was muddy. So, enter Captain Mulliken of the Lexington Police Department, known as, quote, the greatest bloodhound detective who ever lived. He and three deputies arrived in South Elkhorn with two bloodhounds, and these dogs were introduced to the scent of the crime scene. They picked up a scent, and they took off three miles east to a tobacco barn. There were a few men working in the barn, and the police asked if they'd seen anyone passing by. And they said, well, yes, we have. They had seen, quote, William Lockett pass, going toward the QNC tracks. They said he'd been wearing a muddied military uniform and that he had walked by on the exact path that the dogs had been sniffing. This would have been about two hours after the murder, so they needed to hurry up if they were going to catch him. They passed a church where a woman said she had spoken to a man who matched Lockett's description, and that was just a half hour before the dogs got there, so they were catching up to him. Witnesses at the Q&C tracks said they saw a man fitting Lockett's description at the tracks, and it appeared that he was waiting to board a train. They also noticed that he was muddy up to his knees. Law enforcement headed to nearby towns Brannon and Keene, and then around 4.30 p.m., searchers caught up with Lockett in Dixontown. He was still wearing a muddy army uniform. He did have a set of overalls with him, but he hadn't changed into them yet. Lockett was placed in a squad car and driven back through South Elkhorn to the police department on Water Street in Lexington. When he arrived at the department, officers noticed blood spots on his coat. He was calm and compliant during questioning. He did not have an attorney present. He was asked to explain a cut on his finger, and he said that he got that from wrestling with a man. So at first, he was denying his involvement, and then finally he was asked, listen, how did you get that little girl over that fence? And he said, I just packed her under my arm. When asked whether he assaulted her, he told the officers that he had tried, but he didn't succeed. There was apparently no follow-up to this question, and the matter was not discussed further. He did also admit to using the rock that was found next to her, and to covering her body up with the corn fodder in the field. When asked if the umbrella was broken from Geneva trying to fight back, he said no, she stepped on it and broke it. And there was no further questioning about that either. When asked why he killed her, Lockett simply said that he didn't know. He was transferred to uh, the county jail on East Short Street, but by 5.40 p.m., a judge ordered that he be moved to the state prison in Frankfurt for fear of his safety. 
This was a good call since a mob was already starting to form outside the jail in Lexington. Now, I, I do think it's worth pointing out here that Lockett was captured around 4.30 p.m., like I said. I don't know the exact distance between where he was caught and where he was questioned, but he was in prison by 5.40 p.m., which means that that initial round of questioning couldn't have been more than an hour, which I think is really interesting. You know, usually they would have, I mean, nowadays they would have talked to him for probably hours. Um, but yeah, the mob outside the jail got pretty rowdy that night. So by 8 p.m., after they had moved him to Frankfurt, out of Lexington, they had to actually let some people inside the jail. And they said, look, you guys, you can search the jail, look around. He's not here. Okay. You can calm down. Learning that he really had been moved, the mob set their sights on following him to Frankfurt. So about 300 people hopped in their cars to head to the capital and another 50 or so took the electric interurban cars. Others even took taxis, which had to have been an expensive trip, but these people were so angry that they, they just, you know, couldn't see straight and they tried to follow this guy uh, to, to Frankfurt. The mob descending on Frankfurt was met by a roadblock put in place by then Governor Edwin Morrow. They had increased the number of guards at the prison a single car with three people in it somehow made it through the roadblocks and all the way to the prison steps, and the passengers were promptly arrested and taken directly to see the governor in person, who then interrogated them. One of them told Morrow that he was a relative of the murdered child, and so Morrow said, quote, Tell the mother of this poor child that the law will be enforced in this case. There will be no miscarriage of justice for her. Tell this poor woman that the man who killed her little child will be punished to the full extent of the law. A grand jury indicted Will Lockett on February 5th, 1920. The trial was scheduled to begin quickly, February 9th. A letter was sent to the governor on the day of the indictment asking him to send assistance in keeping the peace during the trial. That Thursday afternoon, there was an editorial in the Lexington Leader calling for law and order to prevail. It asked civilians to allow Lockett due process and assured readers justice would be, quote, swift and certain. It later listed efforts to keep the peace. Troops with machine guns and automatic rifles, special deputy sheriffs, city and county officers to protect Lockett. They thought about moving the trial to another venue, another city, but ultimately it was decided by Fayette County Judge Kerr and Judge Executive Fred Bullock to hold court in Lexington. A lot of folks were really nervous about this. Things could quickly escalate if they hold this trial near where the crime occurred, near where the family was still mourning. One family member in particular, Tupper, made a public statement prior to the start of the trial. Quote, as a brother of Geneva Hardman, who was murdered by Will Lockett, and as a representative of her family, I request all our friends and those who sympathize with us not to indulge in any violence or create any disturbance when Lockett is brought here for trial. 
The authorities have acted promptly. The man is under arrest and his trial fixed for next Monday. There is no doubt of his guilt and he has confessed to it and I feel sure that a prompt and speedy trial will take place and that any jury impaneled with will find him guilty and punish him adequately for the horrible crime he has committed. The precipitation of a battle or conflict between the authorities protecting the man and citizens who are justly indignant over the crime would necessarily result in many deaths and probably the killing of innocent bystanders who are taking no part in the conflict. I would hate to see the life of any other person endangered or lost as a result of violence by reason of a conflict over a brute like this. And I, therefore, urge all citizens, for the good of the name of the county and in the interest of law and order, do nothing to interfere with the orderly process of the law, because I am confident that prompt and exact justice will be done and that punishment commensurate with the crime will be meted out to this man. So that was his statement, which I thought was very powerful. In preparation, 50 special officers were sworn in, and the home guard was sent in as well. Their commander, James DeWeese, released this statement. Quote, Warning is hereby given to all persons that any attempt by individuals or groups to obstruct the civil authorities in the performance of their duty or to penetrate the zone fixed by the military authorities will be met with force. Additional warning is given herewith that loitering or lingering about the approaches to the courthouse will place those persons in the danger zone should a resort to force be necessary. Individuals or groups will do this at their own peril. The responsibility for any bloodshed at this trial will rest on those who disregard their duty as citizens and attempt to take the law out of the hands of the constituted authorities. It is confidently expected that the citizens of Fayette County will respect that law as administered by their own officials and entities. The Lexington leader put out a fake story about Lockett being transferred by train at a certain time from the state prison back to Fayette County. This was to throw people off the scent of his real travel itinerary so that there wasn't any trouble. The night before the trial started, police stretched steel cables around the courthouse to keep folks at a distance. I'll post photos of all of this. They're, they were at waist height, and they were literally this steel barrier between giant mobs of people and law enforcement protecting the courthouse. Only one entrance to the courthouse was unlocked. Men with machine guns were stationed at all entrances. Troops were patrolling the streets. So that included local law enforcement, the National Guard, and these special appointed officers. Students from UK and Transylvania had been encouraged to keep their distance, but many of them showed up anyway. Traffic was shut down on a few segments of surrounding streets. Inside the courthouse, jury selection took a whopping 12 minutes. Lockett's attorney, George R. Hunt, asked them one simple question. Admitting the guilt of the defendant, do you think you can try this case fairly and impartially? From that point, it was obvious that Lockett was going to plead guilty, and Hunt was feeling out if perhaps they might not sentence him to death. One juror was dismissed by the Commonwealth's attorney, John Allen, because he admitted to being adamantly opposed to the death penalty. 
After the one dismissal, the jury was set. Foreman John Stoll, jurors Crosby, Kramer, McDowell, Burrier, Rohrer, Henton, Curry, Downing, Hugel, Battelle, and Henderson. The foreman happened to be the owner of the Lexington Leader, former member of the House of Representatives, and owner of the Lexington Water Company. Kind of a big shot. A name that comes up a lot in Lexington history. Uh, of course, these were all men. It was 1920, and women had won the right to vote and the right to serve on a jury, but that hadn't exactly been implemented yet, and it definitely wasn't going to happen on a high-profile case like this. So 12 men, all white, um, upper-class socioeconomic backgrounds. Judge Charles Kerr presided over the trial. He'd been appointed a circuit court judge in 1911. He took the bench at 9 a.m. on Monday, February 9th, 1920. Remember, this is uh, five days after the murder. Normally, when I talk about high-profile cases, you'll hear me mention how the courthouse overflowed and there was standing room only and people refused to go to the bathroom so they wouldn't have to uh, find a seat when they got back. This case wasn't like that because law enforcement paid special attention to how many people they let in. And while the court proceeding was open to the public, they were really careful not to let it get too full so that the crowd was less likely to get out of hand so that they could keep it manageable. And if you didn't have a seat, you couldn't stay. There was no, no standing room, no aisle blocking. Um, so it wasn't that crowded inside the courthouse. Commonwealth Attorney Allen was joined by County Attorney Hogan Yancey and Buckner Allen for the prosecution. Judge Kerr appointed Colonel Samuel M. Wilson and George Hunt to defend Lockett. These two had been described as two of the ablest members of the Fayette Bar. So these were no scrubs. They were no first day on the job public defenders. They were formidable opponents. The room fell silent as Lockett was led into the courtroom. The indictment was read, and he was charged with the murder of Geneva Hardman. And that's where I'll bring part one of this story to a close. You should have part two tomorrow morning. Let me know what you think so far. Send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to follow the Facebook page Kentucky History and Haunts and join the Facebook group Kentucky History and Haunts and more there's an Instagram at KY History Haunts and if you haven't already done so please leave a review wherever you're listening whether it's Apple or Spotify or somewhere else thank you so much for listening until next time mm -hmm.